Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. <clears throat> Sunday morning, studying the book of Revelation together. And uh, while we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll be in the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, this evening. I'm so glad that it worked for David, Pastor David Guzik's schedule to be able to come last week, and he's a wonderful teacher, and uh, he is an even better man, and uh, brother in the Lord and Christian, and so I'm always thrilled that uh, to be around him, let alone have him come and minister the word. Revelation chapter 17. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, the apostle John said, saying to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which had, was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the wine of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, John wrote, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which, uh, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is, is, is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but have received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast... These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, it's just patently obvious what all of this means, and so... <laughs> Well, hardly requires any explanation at all, but we'll endeavor to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your word. Mine goes so often to the fact that it really is going to outlive the heavens and the earth, certainly going to outlive our lives. We thank you for the privilege of being able to live our lives uh, under its protection to live it in the fullness of the edification and the perspective that it brings to our lives, how rich we are for your word. And we submit to you and your Holy Spirit who is present with us and in us today. And we ask that you would take this passage and you would continue to conform us into the image of Christ and continue to take all of our attitudes, all of our thinking, all of our ideas, the life that we live, and bring them in a greater way in alignment with him, Lord, and with your word. And for this work of your spirit, we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Please be seated. So this morning we continue our study of chapter 17 here, which we began the last time we were together and having to do with God's destruction of religious or spiritual Babylon uh, during the tribulation period. We remember that the rapture of the church is going to occur immediately before the start of the tribulation period, before the revelation of an unveiling of the Antichrist into human history. But that rise of the Antichrist, the unveiling of the Antichrist, is not going to bring uh, religion or the rapture, bring religion to a screeching halt uh, in the world. Uh, There is a world religion that's going to gain supremacy uh, in the church's absence during the tribulation period, and it will come to fill the entire uh, world. And in fact, as we're going to see this morning, most religions uh, of the world will go on completely untouched by the rapture uh, of, of the church. And many, many religious people are going to remain, and as we'll see also this morning, Many, many churches uh, which uh, identify with Christ and claim to be Christian will hardly be dented by the rapture. Now, the last time we began our study of this false uh, religious system by noticing that God refers to it as a harlot, verse 1, and then also in verse 1 that she will sit on many waters, that is the waters representing peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues, verse 15. In other words, she will be a dominant one world religion during, uh, for a time during the tribulation period. She will uh, cover and reach into every corner of the world. The false religious system is also described as Mystery Babylon the Great. That is, it's going to bear the characteristics of the religious system of ancient Babylon and also of the ancient Babel that gave birth to uh, Babylon. And all of this, the characteristics of Babel and Babylon spiritually uh, are as old as Genesis chapter 11. They have existed from almost the beginning of time. They exist today and they will be uh, in full bloom during the tribulation uh, period. The characteristics of that uh, this harlot will be, uh, in terms of the doctrine, will be it'll have absolutely zero uh, regard for the commandments of God and, uh, and, and will not recognize his authority at all. It will advocate uh, very much for self-righteousness. It will tell people that you can approach God on your own terms. You can approach God any way that you want and uh, he'll be lucky to have you, and you can define uh, these things related to God uh, any way that you want. Your voice, your wills are far more important than uh, his voice or his will, and uh, you don't have to approach God on his terms, that is, on the basis of a faith in, in Jesus Christ, and uh, you can approach him on the basis of human effort and on the basis of human wisdom. It'll also be a religious system that is man-centered as opposed to being God-centered. It will be very much man-exalting as opposed to being uh, God-exalting. It will be characterized by idolatry, the worship of the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore, and it will be a terrible persecutor of those who worship the Lord. And so those are the things we looked at last time, and now let's continue this description of the great harlot, spiritual Babylon, in verse 2. The kings of the earth, we're told, will fornicate with her. And again, her uh, influence is going to be uh, worldwide. Of course, fornication represents a union, and the religious, uh, the, uh, the kings of the earth are going to unite themselves with this religious system, and it is going to be a uniting that is going to be uh, viewed as, uh, uh, by God as ungodly as fornication is viewed uh, by God. Fornication is more than a union. It also represents a sexual relationship without covenant, uh, without commitment to one another in, in 
uh, in that relationship. And so for a time, this religious system will be useful to the political leaders of the world uh, and very useful to the Antichrist. They will openly, publicly identify with this spiritual system, uh, but there's no commitment to her. Uh, There is no covenant with her. She will be uh, used until uh, she has finished serving their purposes and after which they will turn on her and they will destroy her as we'll later see in verse 16. It's the same kind of thing that we see every election cycle in the United States of America, certainly a presidential election cycles, but other officials as well, as there's this attempt by candidates to uh, gain the support, unite themselves with uh, religious people and, and uh, uh, try and, and become identified with them and, and, and that kind of catering uh, uh, to them and to woo the religious vote and then upon getting into power to do everything that they can so often to destroy uh, what uh, uh, they stand for, what the uh, religious people stand for. In verse 2, the inhabitants of the earth will be made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Of course, uh, to be drunk with alcohol is to come under the influence of alcohol. Here, the inhabitants of the earth are going to come under her influence, uh, spiritually speaking. And just as a physical drunkenness, it causes a person to have a distorted view of a reality. Spiritual drunkenness does the same thing as well. And she's going to give the entire world a very distorted view of what it means to be uh, spiritual, which uh, it, 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 she's going to provide an alternative to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and the world in its debauched condition by and large, not everyone, lots of people will get saved during the tribulation, but there will be a lot of people who will like this option uh, to trusting in Christ for salvation. And then in verse 3, we're told that the angel then carried John away in the spirit into the wilderness where he sees the harlot for himself, probably in the form uh, of a vision And in verse 3, she's described as sitting on a scarlet beast. So picture in your mind this harlot that is riding a beast that is scarlet, an animal that is colored red. We know from chapter 13 that the beast refers to the Antichrist, who will be the head of a world government that will be centered in Europe, a revived Roman Empire. The beast is colored scarlet. Uh, very, very appropriately, because as much as people like uh, Stalin and, and Hitler and Mao and others have the blood of tens of millions of people uh, on their hands in human history, no one will shed blood in human history like the Antichrist will shed blood. It's also appropriate Uh, the color red because it identifies this beast, this Antichrist, uh, with the dragon, with Satan, who's going to empower the Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery uh, dragon. And so it is the color of of the devil, the color of blood, and it will be the color of, of the Antichrist as he is portrayed here. You notice that she sits upon the beast. She will initially be operating under the illusion that she is in control, that she is in control of the beast. She has the upper hand uh, in this relationship. And the Antichrist will allow her to think that she is in charge and that she does control him as long as it serves his purposes uh, to do so. Political powers, of course, are very, very adept at making religious people feel as if they are in control of something when they're not in control of anything at all, and they will turn the spigot off or whatever they might do in an instant. You notice in verse 4, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And so this religious system is going to be fabulously wealthy. 
It is going to amass just a stunning amount of wealth, and she's not going to make any attempt at all to, uh, to hide it. She's going to be very, very skilled as a harlot. You see a harlot that is uh, dressed like this and adorned like this and has this kind of wealth. You're talking about a harlot who is very, very good at what she does in seduction and in uh, turning uh, people into a dependence uh, upon her. And so she will be skilled and successful. One of the problems, of course, of showing off wealth, as she uh, apparently is going to do, is that there's hardly any government in the world that can see a pile of wealth somewhere without somehow thinking that it belongs to them. And then by hook or crook, they will endeavor then to make that pile of money, that wealth their own, and ultimately the Antichrist will do that to this harlot as well. You notice in verse 4, in her hand she has a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And then further she will invite the entire world to drink her cup, to uh, uh, a cup filled with abomination and uh, uh, filthiness. So uh, uh, her religious system is not going to condemn anything as sin. Uh, It's not going to call anyone to holiness. It's not going to call anyone to uh, repentance. It's not going to call anyone to self-restraint related to sin. And she will call the practice of, of these sins and these abominations and the filthiness that she advocates for. She will call the practice of these things even spiritual uh, marks of true morality and uh, true spirituality. She will provide a spiritual cover for the practice of all kinds of, uh, of evil. And of course, that will make her uh, very, very popular uh, with mankind at that time. The name that's written on her forehead in verse 5 is Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This name is written on her forehead. We know from uh, ancient historians uh, writing concerning uh, ancient Rome uh, that it wasn't unusual for the most brazen of, of prostitutes to wear their name uh, on their forehead in the form of a, a headband of some kind to just openly identify in the city of Rome uh, as a, a harlot and uh, in the same way spiritual Babylon is going to be completely unashamed uh, of her shameless activity. You notice in verse 6, she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She will participate with the Antichrist in the death of people who become Christians during the tribulation period, and many will, and uh, known as tribulation saints. So she will be tolerant of anything and everything that comes to the mind of human beings. The one thing she will be intolerant of is Christians. Born-again Christians alive during the tribulation uh, period, and she will engage in the persecution of them. When it speaks of her being drunk with uh, the blood, it speaks of the high that she will get in persecuting Christians, the, the thrill, the delight she's going to get out of the persecution and slaughter of tribulation saints at that time. At the side of her, you notice in verse 6 as well, uh, this caused John to marvel with great uh, amazement. John knew persecution. The apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos uh, when he receives this revelation. And uh, because of Roman persecution of the entire church in the Roman uh, Empire. So he knows persecution and Christians are being killed for their faith at that time in, in church history. But as he looks at what this woman is going to do and the persecution she's going to meet out in, uh, in, in alliance with the Antichrist, uh, all of what he was in the middle of pales in comparison to what will occur. 
Now, in verses 7 through 18, there is the mystery of the woman is, continues, but now there's more of a focus upon the beast upon which uh, she is riding, upon the Antichrist. And so, the angel in verse 7 notices the astonishment that John has related to the beast, related to the harlot, the relationship that they have uh, with one another, and uh, this false religious system in the Antichrist during the tribulation. And so, uh, the angel, uh, John is now given understanding of this. We wouldn't understand it at all except for uh, this, uh, this understanding that is given to John now, which he records for us. The, in verse 8 begins this description of the Antichrist, and we're told that uh, he was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So, this appears to refer to the assassination attempt that will occur uh, against the Antichrist during the tribulation period. We studied that in in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, He was, speaks of uh, who he was prior to his assassination. He was not referring to his death at that assassination. He ascends out of the bottomless pit, speaks of how the, anti, uh, the false prophet uh, will then resurrect him out uh, of hell, and uh, then ultimately, uh, despite his death, burial, and resurrection here, apparent death, burial, and resurrection, he will go to perdition. His ultimate end is going to be uh, an eternal lake of fire. Now, this apparent Uh, death, burial, and resurrection of the Antichrist is going to cause the entire world, the unsaved population of the world at that time, to marvel at the Antichrist. And it will be key to them then uh, directing their worship uh, toward the, uh, the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist here, uh, it, it, this is the thing that, that kind of converts them in this, uh, in, in this way. It is interesting that here we have, we live for 2,000 years in, uh, in the beautiful glory of the great, great sign of Jesus as the promised Messiah and the Savior of the world, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. The religious leaders came to him and said, give us a sign that you're the Messiah, that you're the Savior, that you're the Son of God as you say that you are. He says, a, a, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Speaking of his resurrection, that yes, he would die, yes, he would be buried, but he would only remain in that condition for three uh, days. And, and here you have an entire population of the world that think nothing of the witness of that death, burial, and resurrection as a basis for faith. And they will, they will highly esteem uh, this death, apparent death, burial, and resurrection of the Antichrist which speaks to, to the fact that, uh, of, of how selective they will be related to this. They don't want Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection be, as a witness because they don't want to worship Him. They will believe uh, this death, burial, and resurrection because the Antichrist at that time will be precisely who uh, they want to uh, worship. The Antichrist in verse 9 is represented as having uh, seven heads, which represent the seven mountains on which the woman sits, that is, where she rules from, where her false religious system will be headquartered uh, during the tribulation period. And this appears to point to the uh, city of Rome, given the fact that Rome has long been referred to uh, uh, 200 years before uh, John uh, wrote the revelation by the Holy Spirit, long been known as the city of seven hills. And uh, the Greek word that is used here for mountains is equally translated hills. Now, adding to the very, very strong possibility and probability 
that this refers to Rome as the headquarters for spiritual Babylon during the tribulation period is in verse 18, where this woman is identified as the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And what was the great city that ruled over the kings of the earth at the time of John? Uh, It's the city of Rome, the the headquarters and the capital city uh, of the Roman Empire. Now, here I think we have to be very, very careful not to then take uh, the leap of declaring Roman Catholicism to be uh, the, uh, the ultimate expression of spiritual Babylon uh, during the tribulation period or to look at Roman Catholicism as many people have done and say she is going to be, Roman Catholicism is the sole uh, precursor of the spiritual Babylon. Now, I am not a fan of Roman Catholicism and what it has done, and if you're Roman Catholic, uh, don't flee. We'll get to the Protestants soon enough. So there's a, something to offend everybody in the sermon today. But when I, look at, when I look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, I look at his lifestyle, I look at his teaching, I look at what he advocated and wanted his disciples to be and to make most important what he wanted Christianity to be and for a local church to be. And when I look at the simplicity of that in the Gospels and then I look at Roman uh, Catholicism, it looks like two very, very different things um, uh, to, to me. Now, and, and among those things, for instance, is praying to Mary. When the Bible teaches very, very clearly that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, you can't pray to Mary. You just can't hijack Christianity and say, oh, now you can get equally to the Father on the basis of Mary as Jesus. We're not free to redefine the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross and to provide uh, to us. Then there is the praying to dead saints and asking for their intercession, uh, purgatory, uh, that only the Roman Catholic Church has the authority to interpret Scripture. The Pope is the head of the church, the formal office in Christianity of priests and then demanding celibacy of this, this formal group Uh, such as priests, the confessional of confessing sins to priests, and on and on and on you can go talking about Roman Catholicism and uh, the ornateness of the robes, the ornateness of the miters and the hats that are are worn, the staffs that are are used, the kissing uh, of the Pope's ring, all of these kind of things, and you look at them, and then you look at Jesus in the Gospels, and you just can't see him participating in any of it. Not in your wildest uh, stretching of what you think Jesus could be a a part of uh, at all. It's nothing at all like him, nothing like what he practiced or by what he taught. My biggest problem with Roman Catholicism is its official stand concerning salvation. And their uh, official stand is that salvation is based upon a faith in Jesus Christ and keeping the seven Roman Catholic sacraments. And and any time you add an and to the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross for salvation— and the forgiveness uh, of, of sins, you are saying that what he did on that cross was not enough. Amen. And that somehow I can, as fallen and as defiled and as unholy as I am, that somehow my works not only can be added to what he has done, but need to be added to what he has done in order for me to be saved 
and to have the forgiveness of sins and the confidence that one day I will enter into heaven and have a personal relationship with uh, God. And even if you are a religious system that has been around for some 1,700 years, you simply can not do that. You can't do that. It's not even lawful to fiddle around on the edges as, as happens in this system. You can't go to the heart of Christianity and minimize Christ and His finished work in that way. It's not allowed. There is no and to salvation. And no amount of, of time in human history will, will, can legitimize uh, holding that, that position. And why is it that so many Catholics can spend so many years in Roman Catholicism and never hear the gospel? Never hear about God's offer of salvation uh, by grace and through faith, by just simply putting my trust in Jesus Christ for my sins and then entering into a relationship with God through Him. And I think that one of the reasons is, is that so much of Roman Catholicism, and I would contend the entire thing sets itself up as a mediator between people and God. It tells people, you don't have to worry about a relationship with God. You don't have to worry about these things. You just be a good Catholic, and then we'll take care of all of these things uh, for you. And when a person is really born again by the Holy Spirit, and they realize that I now have a relationship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father, the Holy Spirit has come into my life, then He's going to direct me straight past all of these kind of things that people set up into that a simple, uncluttered relationship uh, with God. But that kind of a thing is a threat to a lot of religious uh, institutions. And so it's not going to be uh, emphasized. Two, just this last week or two, witness to two Roman Catholics and, and uh, shared the gospel with them. And they'd been years in Roman Catholicism and never had heard about receiving God's gift of salvation. Never been exposed to that. And I think about how many people, oh, Catholics over 40 years that I've talked with in the, in the same category. And we could go on for hours uh, talking about these kinds of things that make up Roman Catholicism. But it is important to realize that by God's grace, there are those in the Roman Catholic Church who are Christians. And uh, I don't know what the percentage is. I don't know what the number is. I know they're Christians not because of Roman Catholic doctrine, but in spite of Roman Catholic doctrine. And by God's grace, somehow He's broken through in their lives. Or they're in a situation in the world in which this is the only representation of Christianity that they know or they will ever know. And so God breaks through in that, takes them in that place, and then brings them, despite everything else, into a free, beautiful uh, relationship with God and, and a life that looks like Christ, uh, even while in the midst of of all uh, of, of that. I remember that uh, the, uh, the, the first uh, Christian that I ever met that I, I sensed had a, and I was very, very young, and I sensed had a relationship with God. This person knew God, and, and I recognize now to be filled with the Holy Spirit though I didn't understand any of that kind of language until later when I became a Christian myself, was a Catholic priest that I heard on a Sunday morning at St. Thomas Aquinas Church in Napa, California. He was different from any priest I had ever met. And how he brought that homily forward and how he seemed to know God and know Christ and, and honored Him. And so they're present in the system. The system is the system. The individuals are the individuals in, in the system. And very, of, and very often, they're two entirely different things. And like all Christians, Catholic Christians are going to be raptured 
prior to the tribulation. And so in a moment in time, at the time of the rapture, their influence within Roman Catholicism will be lost in a moment. And Roman Catholicism as a religion, as an institution, will then in that split second enter into the tribulation period without a single Christian in it, complete with all of its wealth and complete with all of its power and, and likely resulting in it becoming something very different in a negative way from even what it is today. But spiritual Babylon will also be made up of many Protestant denominations, which will be virtually unaffected numerically by the rapture of the church. And in this regard, principally, uh, the uh, Protestant, liberal Protestant denominations, which claim to be uh, Christian, but they deny the virgin birth of Christ. You can't do that. You take the Bible as a whole or you walk away from it. But you don't get to touch its description of who Jesus is because who He is and every bit of Him is exactly what we need in a Savior as sinners. You don't monkey around with Him. And you don't deny His virgin birth. And they deny Jesus' deity. If he is not divine, then he's not sinless, and he can't save anybody. They deny his resurrection. They deny the necessity of being born again. They teach that you can get into heaven by being good and and making Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins as a result of that totally unnecessary and worthless. Anybody that says that you can get into heaven on the basis of good works, that you don't have to put, it's not based solely upon what Jesus did on the cross, they are saying that that wasn't enough. And, and they are, in, in, and I'm struggling again this second service for the word related to it. You cannot do that to the cross. And you cannot do that to Christ. To look at that cross and have the Holy Spirit in you and to read about it in the Scriptures and to think that I have anything to add to that, that that is not enough, is to speak so smallly related to the cross. And if it's no longer an affront to those who claim to be Christians, then we need to know that it's a front to Christ And it's a front to God the Father who sent him. And it's an affront in heaven. You don't come and say these kind of things. And then pretend to be uh, Christians. And on and on and on we can go concerning uh, them. And in one split second after the rapture of the church, every church within Protestantism will enter the tribulation period without a single Christian in them. And I hope nobody shows up on Sunday in this church uh, following the rapture. But we'll see, related to every church, in that instant of the rapture, all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the influence uh, of, uh, of, of the, the, the Protestantism It will go now to be governed by, to be led by, and to be attended by the unsaved, complete with all of its wealth, complete with all of its power. And to give you some kind of a sense of the scope of the problem in the United States alone, how many people are setting themselves up for the spiritual Babylon presently, Recent polling, the most recent polling on this by uh, George Barna and his group, uh, among those who describe themselves as Christian, reveals 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. 64% say that all religions are of equal value. 
58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. 57% believe in karma. So this, and all of this has, is to say nothing of the non-Christian religions that will go uh, into the tribulation period unscathed uh, by the rapture in terms of Islam or in terms of of Hinduism or in terms of Buddhism and then in terms of non-Christian cults like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses. uh, All of these religious systems and religious people will be virtually untouched by the rapture of the church. John then goes on to speak in verse uh, 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 10 to 11 of the seven kings. And he says, five have fallen. At the time of Rome, there had been five previous world-ruling empires, Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylonia, uh, Persia, and Greece. Uh, One is, this refers to Rome, who was in power as a world-ruling empire at the time that John wrote this. And the other, there's a seventh that has not yet come, John says. And this refers to the final world-ruling empire uh, that will take place in the last days and uh, during the tribulation period, characterized by the feet of iron and clay in Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter uh, 2, a world-ruling empire that will come out of a revived uh, 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 Europe. And this seventh and world ruling empire will only continue a short time, we're told, under the Antichrist for seven years. In verse 11, we're also told that the beast, the Antichrist, uh, uh, the, the uh, revived Roman Empire, that, uh, that over them will be an eighth king, and yet this eighth king is also of the seventh. So this seems to me that when the Antichrist is given authority over, uh, to rule over the revived Roman Empire by the ten kings, technically at that point he becomes a seventh king. But when he then at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period goes into the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt Jewish temple and then sits down in the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God and then demands to be worshipped as God, at that point there's a sense in which he ceases to be uh, the ruler over what he has ruled for the first three and a half years, and that uh, during the tribulation, that arrangement uh, comes to an end, so to speak, and then he just takes over everything. There's no pretense of sharing power or working with the ten kings who put him in, into uh, power to begin with. Um, and he was the seventh, but in terms of pure power, he will then become the eighth. And of course, all of this is very, very technical. But the main point is that the Antichrist will rule over a revived Roman Empire and then take control of it for his purposes. You notice in verses 12 and 13 that the ten horns, uh, speaking of the ten horns on the beast, they represent ten kings who have yet received no kingdom as yet. In other words, they are future. Again, this refers to ten kings uh, of the ten nations out of the revived Roman Empire who will give their power and authority to the Antichrist. They will surrender their national uh, sovereignty for his uh, kingdom and his government to get established. And I would refer you to our recent uh, study of the book of Daniel on Sunday nights, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 for uh, a, a little more clarity on this. And they will, he will rule, we're told, verse 12, uh, for one hour their kingdom is going to last a very short period of time compared to uh, the other kingdoms. Roman Empire went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But during the tribulation period, you can imagine 
as the Antichrist, everything is going like gangbusters for the first three and a half years. He seems like the perfect everything for taking mankind forward, and they have to believe this is going to go on for thousands of years, if not uh, forever, and yet uh, all of it will be over in seven years. And so, uh, during the first, uh, uh, it, uh, it won't have the longevity of even the other other kingdoms. And then in verse 14, the harlot, the beast, and the kings will attempt to make war with the lamb. Instead, they'll be overcome uh, because the lamb is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And all of this will happen in the battle of Armageddon, which we'll talk, at, uh, talk about when we get to chapter 19. In verse 16, the ten horns, the ten kings, will then turn on the harlot. So the ten kings... Uh, the political powers uh, under the Antichrist, they will use the harlot to gain power. They will use the harlot, the spiritual system, to gain the trust uh, of the world, to give legitimacy to what it is that they're trying to do. They're, they're going to concentrate power uh, in, in human history like never before. And people will look to the harlot to be set at ease about uh, this kind of a concentration of power. And the harlot will put them at ease uh, related to that. But once that power is consolidated, uh, then... They're going to turn on her, uh, and uh, they will, uh, after she served her purpose, they will turn on her and destroy her. Not only, verse 16, will they kill her, but they will humiliate her in some way prior to uh, her, her death, and, uh, and then they will mutilate her after her uh, death. So if you want to play games with the devil, um, and uh, uh, then... Uh, is a dangerous game. If anybody thinks of the devil and the Antichrist controlled by the devil as anything other than pure evil, an evil you can feel, an evil that is undiluted, then we're kidding ourselves. And to try and make a bargain or a pact with the devil, as they will do during the tribulation period, and somehow think that their loyalty, their helping Antichrist to get into a place uh, of power, surely that will be remembered. Surely we're on Satan's uh, good side in all of this. And then in a moment, he's been using them all along, and then he destroys them. And what he does and what he will do with this religious system, he does with individual human beings. He comes alongside and as long as he can use someone, as long as he can get something out of them as, as, and, and uh, give and then uh, develop some kind of a loyalty from some kind of a person and a person begin to think that when I find myself down, you know, this alliance that I have is going to hold and then it doesn't hold. As much as God loves us and loves our soul, Satan hates us and loves and hates our souls. And, you, and, the, and there isn't time or a vocabulary to put that in human language. And they will play with the devil and they will get very, very badly burned as everyone who plays with the devil ends up getting very, very badly burned. I would guess that this destruction of the harlot happens at the three and a half year mark uh, of the tribulation period, the midpoint, the beast is going to uh, find it necessary to destroy this religious harlot, this religious uh, system, because when she, he does go at the midpoint into the Holy of Holies, declare himself to be God, demand to be worshipped as God, then he launches an entire new religion, the worship of the Antichrist. And now he doesn't want any competition. So he destroys the competition and then forces people uh, going forward uh, to worship him under the threat of uh, death. And so there you have God's instruction concerning the great religious harlot 
and the relationship that she's going to have with the Antichrist during uh, the tribulation uh, period and then ultimately her destruction by the Antichrist. And isn't it wonderful to be able to read this and to study it and to look uh, at it from the vantage point of having been born again. Not something that we fear related to our future. Not something that we think we're going to find ourselves in the middle of. To be able to read it and to realize that the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ Himself stands between us and what is going to unfold at that time during the tribulation uh, period and to protect us from the, the deception that is involved in all of this. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there are so many, and I talked about it last time, there are so many voices in the world saying this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. There's so many voices within what identifies with Christianity. But Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. That's known as clarity. And then in that same exchange with Nicodemus, he declared how we're born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in that Son will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the issue is, am I born again? Am I born again? When I talk with Roman Catholics or or witness to them, I don't talk about the rosary. I don't talk about purgatory. I don't talk about Mary. I don't talk about any of that unless they want to go there. I talk about the necessity of being born again. And do they know that? Because I know that once a person is born again and the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, that he will then glorify Christ. He will simplify everything and bring people into a relationship with Christ, move forward toward him all the days of our life and thus protect us from the air that is around us. And so that's the most important thing that can happen. Have you been born again? The question of who or what are you relying upon for the confidence that when you die, you are right with God and you will end up in heaven. And if the answer is a church, whether Protestant or Catholic, or anything other than I rely upon Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins and his burial and his resurrection. That is the only way to be born again. And, the, and so that is what I make the focus. And if you're here today, doesn't matter what church you've been raised in, it doesn't matter to me ultimately whether you ever come back here again, if you're just visiting with us today, and you say, that's not my cup of tea, that that place that happened there. Fine, go to some other church that honors God, tries to anyway, points you to God, is serious about the Word of God and wants to feed you and, and, and grow you in a relationship with God. Go to any church that does that that you want. But today... to to realize the importance of this thing happening. I know that I've been born again. I know that the Holy Spirit is in me. I know I'm right with God. And that is who Jesus is, who I am relying on in terms of my eternity. And if you can't say, I rely solely upon Him, and, and I've committed my life to Him as that Savior then there's going to be men and women and pastors up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God. It is so hard for us as human beings 
to invest years and decades of our lives in religious systems that have maybe led us astray and farther from God than we ever would have been if we had been left upon our own. And I know that when I talk about these things in front of people that can have made that kind of investment in that kind of a situation that I'm talking about, the dearest thing within your life. But if you're not born again, then no matter what it is that you've been raised in, you're going to have to put Christ above all of that and come to Him today. And then for those of us that sit here today and we are a part of these statistics that are 65%, 67%, 64% believing all kinds of nonsense and calling myself a Christian, you can't do that. You can call yourself whatever you want other than that, but you can't call yourself a Christian. And they have the, the latest, I was looking at latest statistics on this kind of thing, and, and one of the great issues, of course, is that people in a congregation, one of their great complaints is, is related to pastors, is they're not teaching the full counsel of God, trying to pander to me, trying to be nice to everybody. But there's a flip side to that, and that is that more and more in the United States of America, in those kind of churches where there is the teaching of the Word, and there's a sobriety about these kind of things, the congregation is drifting from the leadership and what the pastor uh, believes. And so it isn't just that the pastor has to be right. We have, and only those of us who are in this room know where we are in terms of these things. But I want to say, you and I, but you are not free to redefine Christianity. You cannot make it what you want it to be. You can't say, I will accept this, I will reject this, even though God says all of it is to be accepted. We don't have the freedom to do that. And it is a terrible spiritual pride and arrogance to think that I can do that that I can improve upon something that has changed lives for 2,000 years and has changed eternal destinies for 2,000 years because I'm going to say no to this and say yes to this. But take a hard look at what you say no and yes to. And pretty soon you say, well, I don't agree with this from the Bible and I don't agree with that, but I agree with this and I agree with that. And by the time you put all of that together, look at that and then look in the mirror and see if you aren't looking at yourself. It's what you believe. It's what you think. This is not about what I believe or what I think in my own carnal life. It's what God thinks and what God knows and that we have to submit ourselves uh, to. And so just like the Roman gods and the Greek gods of the ancient world, what did they do? They deified the flesh. They tried to sanctify the sins of the flesh by creating gods after them so there would be no conviction related to sin. And we can do the same thing where we end up with looking at the God that we have created as these liberal denominations do and all, and then we look in the mirror and we realize we are worshiping ourselves. And we are trying to use Christianity to legitimize the worship of myself. And that's not what Christianity exists for. And it's a deep and dangerous deception that has to be repented of because a greater deception is coming. And so the passage is an important one, and it teaches us important lessons, and it warns us about very dangerous things. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.
Thank you for the miracle, Father, of a spiritual birth. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you for the Savior that you have provided to us to worship, to glory in, to know, and to thank. Thank you for your heart for us. Thank you for the perfection of your wisdom revealed in all things and most especially in your way of salvation for us. We are happy to be in the truth and we are satisfied to be in your truth and the life the glory of the life that unfolds as a result to say nothing of the glory of heaven that awaits us. I pray for myself. We pray for one another in this room that any level of spiritual deception that is going on, that you would clear all of that up and move it out of the way and keep us, Lord, from being deceived between now and the moment that we see you face to face. And we ask it in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.